most of who I am as a person, I owe to language. And there are the transactional and functional day-to-day -day uses for language, the ability to read an electricity bill, to write a professional email, or to send a text to my wife saying that the tracking session is running late, see you in the morning. And for these things, I appreciate language, but the, the greater debt that I owe is to the books, the textbooks, the fiction, the poetry, the biographies, the history, the science. And to this day, it still amazes me as a lover of language that these books are nothing more than white pages filled with rows and rows of ink spots. And somehow these ink spots, when they're arranged in just the right way, they have the power to transport the human mind, the power to awaken the imagination and the senses, and the power to connect me as a reader to stories that are far beyond my own experience. So for these reasons, I do say I love language. I really love language. And I've worked in radio and podcasts for about a decade now, and it's always, at least in the better moments, it's always been a natural extension of my love of language. Because I truly believe that at the end of the day, all of us in this room, we are writers. And our final product, even though it's bound in sound waves instead of those little ink spots, we're writers. So if we back up and we think about the process of making what we make, long before the episodes ever arrive in our listener's pocket, we spend hours, hours immersed in words and language. We're researching, pouring over books, periodicals, online articles. We're digging through transcripts. We're turning audio into transcripts, then cutting and pasting special sections of that transcript into a script where we're writing and rewriting narration, uh, ordering the script and the tape, littering the margins of Google Docs with these super minute edit suggestions that labor over extremely fine points of language. We talk about tone, pacing, word choice, chapters, scenes, structure, beats. And it's all with the same desire as any other writer. We want to tell a story. And we know that the story, if we tell it, and it's a story that matters, and if it's told well, the listener, much like the reader of a book, can be transported. So I read this book, Louisa May Alcott's Little Women, when I was in fifth grade. And I loved it so much that I read it again in sixth grade, and then again in eighth grade. And it was the first time that I ever really, really wanted to experience a book again. Um, I was fascinated with history at this time. That was, history and English were my two favorite classes. So I, I know that there was something about the Civil War setting of this book that I loved being able to sort of enter that time. Also, I was one of four brothers, and I remember having a very, very keen feeling of kinship with these four sisters and the way that they formed their own social circle. But what I remember the most about the book is the scene where Beth March is dying of scarlet fever. Now, certainly in fifth grade, I had never in real life been at someone's deathbed. But I remember how I was pulled through the page into that room. The description of each scene, the quietness of everything, and the way the sisters kept vigil. So in preparing for this presentation, I went back and reread this specific scene and I had a bit of sensory deja vu. The power of the writing in this scene still works on me. And I lingered on this paragraph. Often when she woke, Joe found Beth reading in her well-worn little book. 
heard her singing softly to beguile the sleepless night, or saw her lean her face upon her hands, while slow tears dropped through the transparent fingers, and Joe would lie watching her with thoughts too deep for tears, feeling that Beth, in her simple, unselfish way, was trying to wean herself from the dear old life and fit herself for the life to come by sacred words of comfort, quiet prayers, and the music she loved so well. And inside this paragraph, it's this line that really, really grabbed me. So not only does the writing and the description of the scene bring me into the room, but it also brings me into contact, even as a fifth grader, with this extremely complex emotion. To be so sad that you're beyond crying. And again, I was part of a family that had four brothers, and I remember having this really heavy emotional thought. What if I lost one of my brothers? And that pulled me into this scene. Is this how it would feel? And like Beth March, I was the second youngest of the four of us. So in a way, I have Louisa May Alcott to thank for like my very earliest thoughts of mortality. Um, what I want to do now uh, is play a scene from Caliphate, the New York Times podcast following Rukmini Kalamaki's reporting into the Islamic State. In this scene, Rukmini and producer Andy Mills are in a refugee camp north of Mosul, where two young women are reunited with relatives after three years in captivity by ISIS. Uh, Rukmini and Andy in this scene are led to a tent where they find the two women. We were led to the tent, and I realized right away that we had no business being there. Oh my God, they look very sick. The women who had just arrived, they look really bad. They were completely out. One of them was facing upward, and I could see that, that, that her eyelids were literally fluttering. People around them were crying and weeping, but the girls, they looked catatonic. All right, let's go. Heartbreaking. I think that's when I turned to you and said, we've got to go. Yeah. So as a kid, if I really got into a book, I used to read in the morning on the bus, in the spare minutes between classes or before basketball practice. And no matter where I was or what was happening around me, I really, really enjoyed the feeling of disappearing into a good book. And I distinctly remember being on the two train after work listening to this episode of Caliphate. And this scene, by the way, happens at the beginning of the episode. So I'm on this packed train and I'm having that same transported feeling. The way the scene is mixed, the way the music works, the way the pacing of you hear them saying everybody's crying and then they cut that out to say the women are lying there sort of quietly with their eyes fluttering. So it's all these little tiny minute decisions that I'm not thinking about. But this scene pulled me into that tent. And again, it's bringing me into, content, uh, into contact with an extremely complex emotional moment. So the episode ended when I was about a block away from my house. And when I walked in, my wife was giving our son a bath. And I remember just being in the kitchen feeling extremely sort of strange to be there in our house when only minutes before, I really had this feeling that I was in this refugee camp north of Mosul, witnessing the last scene of this episode. And if, if you guys haven't listened to the series, I highly, highly encourage checking it out. But here's what I'm getting at. And here's what we're talking about here today. Two mediums of storytelling both with a similar and unique power to pull us into a story. One reaches us through written language and the other through spoken language and sound. 
And we're going to delve into some specifics about how to bring a written text to life in the sonic realm. And we'll take a close look at a couple examples from a piece of fiction that we produced for the Paris Review podcast, and then also two nonfiction examples, a letter and a court transcript from a show I worked on called Stranglers, which was a 12-part documentary about the Boston Strangler. So I want to start by underlining what these two mediums have in common. So the power to transport, we've been talking about this. What makes these two mediums of storytelling so unique in their ability to pull us in? So I've seen a few movies and a few plays that have transported my mind, no doubt. But for me, nothing is quite like these. With a play or with a film or TV, there's always a sense, a consciousness that there's a screen there or that you're looking through the fourth wall, as they call it in theater. And you're, you're always sort of conscious that you're observing outside or from above. But with these two mediums, when they're done right, there is no wall. As a listener, we are in the scene. And one of the reasons podcasts and books can pull us in so effectively is that consuming books and podcasts and radio are both very intimate experiences. So if you look at these two images, and I, I do wish I had a picture of me reading Little Women on the Bus in fifth grade for the one on the left, but it doesn't exist. Um, but if you look at these two people, group readings and live podcasts aside, the overwhelming majority of user experience in podcasts is just like reading a book. It's this very, very, very private interaction. Books and podcasts create a space that we can lean into. Neither medium provides visual content, and yet we all know, and we've all heard people describe podcasts as an extremely, extremely visual experience. So our mind, as a reader or as a listener, is actively building and co-creating the scenes. Not only images to fit the language, but also sense memories, emotional memories, and social context. So all, all these things that we're drawing from our own lives, we're starting to interweave with the story. And as soon as your life becomes intertwined with the story, again, that pulls you in even further. So now, let's hear the components that make audio storytelling slightly different. I'm very slow. That's my metabolism, and so uh, that's how I'm going to read it. Like me. Okay? So sound effects, music, and the voice of the narrator. The guy with the book doesn't get any of that. He's got the words on the page, and his mind has to supply the rest. But for the woman in the earbuds, the narrator has a specific voice. And that one that we just heard, this is Wallace Shawn. He's bantering before uh, a tracking session that we did for the story we're going to look at. Uh, and as you heard, he's not going to be a fast-paced narrator. And whether you know him or not, the sound of his voice gives a very, very strong visual cue. And it starts to narrow and guide the possible faces and physical attributes that our mind is able to assign. Likewise, the music, the sound effects, we are giving the listener mental cues that simply cannot exist on a page. And that sounds a little Captain Obvious, I know. But it's really worth thinking about how the sonic decisions that we are making as audio producers. These are decisions that are going to affect the way a listener interacts with the language and with the story. If we make the decisions well, 
the listener leans in a little bit more. We underline the power of the language. If we do it poorly, maybe they flip over to their Instagram feed or they're looking for something else on the Stitcher app. That's a shameless company plug. That's who I work for. Yeah. So what I want to do is I'm going to look at and listen to the opening scene from the story that Wallace Shawn read for us. And in doing so, we're going to take a really close look at some of the decisions that we made as a production team and decisions that I made as a sound designer in adapting this story from the page into sound. So this is the opening few paragraphs of Dennis Johnson's story, Car Crash While Hitchhiking, which first appeared in the Paris Review in the spring of 1989. Now, I first read Car Crash in college. It's the first story in Johnson's book, Jesus' Son. So around 1999, uh, I was a creative writing major, and I found this book sort of by accident, sitting in the English department, picked it up, started reading this story, and had my mind blown. Took the book, and I read it over and over and over. So to be in the studio in June of 2017, recording this story for the Paris Review was really a, a great thrill. And we had this guy, the one and only Wallace Shawn, to do the read. And Wally, of course, was a huge fan of the Stitcher Podcast Network. So what, what is this network? Who are you? What, where am I? What, so, <laughs> so Dennis Johnson had actually died just two months before this recording session. And Wallace had been a, a friend of Dennis Johnson. And so he came into the session really, really committed to honoring his friend by getting a good read. That was a huge blessing. Um, so what I want to do now is I want to just listen to uh, the, the final mix of this opening scene, the mix that made it into the episode. While Hitchhiking, a short story by Dennis Johnson. A salesman who shared his liquor and steered while sleeping. A Cherokee filled with bourbon. A VW no more than a bubble of hashish fumes, captained by a college student. And a family from Marshalltown who head-on'd and killed forever a man driving west out of Bethany, Missouri. I rose up sopping wet from sleeping under the pouring rain, and something less than conscious, thanks to the first three of the people I've already named, the salesman and the Indian and the student, all of whom had given me drugs. At the head of the entrance ramp, I waited without hope of a ride, what was the point even of rolling up my sleeping bag when I was too wet to be let into anybody's car? I draped it around me like a cape. The downpour raked the asphalt and gurgled in the ruts. My thoughts zoomed pitifully. The traveling salesman had fed me pills that made the linings of my veins feel scraped out. My jaw ached. I knew every raindrop by its name. 
I sensed everything before it happened. I knew a certain Oldsmobile would stop for me even before it slowed. And by the sweet voices of the family inside of it, I knew we'd have an accident in the storm. I didn't care. They said they'd take me all the way. So when Wallace Shawn read the first few paragraphs on Mike, I immediately loved this version of the narrator. Everybody in the room did. But I have to note that back when I read this story, this was not the voice that I had supplied in my head. I was hearing and picturing someone who was a little younger, maybe a more mellow, tired voice, sort of like a slightly overweight Sean Penn type. So this is the first decision that we make in adapting any piece of writing into sound. The voice, the reader. And obviously we can't always get a Wallace Shawn or a Mary Louise Parker who we had read another story for us, but whether you're adapting fiction or you're reenacting a scene from a transcript, I do think it's ex extremely, extremely important to put some thought into who you get to be the reader. And really a good reader pays huge dividends, not only in the way the text comes alive, but on a practical level, a good professional reader knows how to take direction. So if you have an emotional note that you wanna hear in a line or a paragraph or a scene, they're gonna be able to take that note and give you what you wanna hear. And for all the, the people who have to edit and post, a good reader means less time spent chopping up audio. So if you're working on a project that has some kind of money behind it, I highly encourage producers, or if you are in charge of a network, make an acting budget, make room for that. And honestly, it doesn't take a huge budget line. There are communities of actors in just about every city. And in my experience, they're totally thrilled to find a new venue to apply their craft. And a lot of them are huge fans of podcasts and will jump right in. Also, a lot of them have home studios that they use for voiceover work or audiobooks. So they're actually able to just record almost on the spur of the moment at home. And that, of course, saves money in terms of renting studio time. But whether you get a pro like Wallace Shawn or you get your roommate, boyfriend who took like an acting class in college, the next step, next most important step, is working through the script. And that means that you as the producer have to take that script and you have to read in, you have to know how you want to hear it. The way that uh, Brendan Francis Newham, who is a co-producer on the Paris Review podcast, his metaphor was to think of it like a shot list, like you're doing a film shoot. You want the close-up. You can ask actors to sort of be off mic, and then if you want emotional content to seem a little bit closer, there's the proximity effect, right? Things like this, you can think about how to use the studio technology, but you gotta come in knowing what you want. And then the next step is coaching a good read. So we're gonna talk through a few of the decisions in terms of coaching a good read and sort of the sound design scoring simultaneously, but the first thing in coaching a good read is pacing. Pacing, pacing, pacing is like the most important thing. Now, Wallace Shawn said he was a slow reader, and in fact, off mic, he told me, I'm the kind of guy who likes to buy his envelopes one at a time. <laughs> but even so, we asked him to really, really take his time on this first section. In fact, with every piece of fiction we recorded, we tried to keep the pacing of the opening scenes slower than the rest of the story, and here's why. When we're reading this book, if I handed everybody this book right now, we are all going to read at our own pace. To get through this first paragraph may take some people 40 seconds and other people three minutes. We can linger on an opening section as long as we need to until we understand it. Or if there's a really beautiful line, 
we look up, stare out the window, and muse upon it, and then, re and then return to the story. But in the audio realm, everybody is locked to the same timeline. And the keeper of that timeline is the producer of the story, the producer of the audio piece. So that means that we as producers have to be conscious of that, and we need to err maybe a little bit on the side of those who need a touch more time and space to get their bearings. We want people to be able to key in on the narrator's voice, to start filling that in with a visual, and to start to absorb the details of the initial exposition. So in this story, it starts with this catalog of characters, and so we want Wallace to do a read that let people really absorb them. So it's a salesman who shared his liquor and steered while sleeping. B. A Cherokee filled with bourbon. B. So hand in hand with the pacing is something that I call voicing. Things like tone and emphasis. So in reading this scene, there's the phrase head on, which is sort of an invented verb for the head on collision. And when you're reading it, it's rel relatively easy to absorb on first glance. But when you hear it out loud, you don't see the hyphen, and it's a little strange to the ear. So we got a take from Wallace, very finite point here, but we asked him to do a take where he put a touch of air quotes around head on, and then a beat after that word, just to let people have that sonic cue that it's sort of an odd word, and then a moment to sort of absorb it. And then there's the longer sentence after that, the one with the commas and the m dashes. Again, a sentence like this is super easy to parse on the page because we see all the grammar, the commas, and the dashes. But in the audio realm, if you don't have the right pacing and the voicing to indicate where those commas are, this sentence can throw a real wrench into the listener's experience. Now, Peter Clowney, who uh, is an editor at Stitcher, he used this phrase when we were working on a script once, that if you have something like that in a script or in a reenactment, the, the listener's brain, he called it running code. They sort of lean back and they're trying to figure out what that sentence means or what that fact that you just introduced has to do with the story. And while they're running code, the audio is still going. So that pulls them out and they're reaching for the rewind button, which we do not want to do. So in the end, we spent a lot of time working on these first few paragraphs. But in my experience, when you take the extra time to work out things like tone and pacing at the beginning, usually all those directions and notes stay with the reader. And then the rest of the script reading moves really naturally out of those notes. And again, that often means a lot less editing to do in post. Now in terms of sound design, this section has some pretty simple literal sound effects and then a few literal or non-literal uh, artistic choices. At the top of the scene, you hear the storm, the car is passing, and you can hear in headphones, it's really nice, you hear the sound of someone slogging through a puddle. It was me, I was slogging through a puddle and I recorded it. And if you use these at the top, okay, before we hear the title card where he says the name of the story and the writer, all of these are really effective in pulling the listener in. I call it the podcast field. If you hear somebody walking through a field, the listener goes, oh, where am I, where am I, who is it? Right, so we're doing this, this work of pulling them in and piquing their curiosity but we're also giving them a head start on building the visual sense of this world. They hear the rain, they hear the person walking through the puddle. But when it comes time for the actual story to start, we wanted all these extra things out of the way so that the listener could key in and start to connect with the narrator's voice and with the language. Now, there's also this line here, my jaw ached. And for this line, uh, Wallace gave us this beautiful, beautiful read where it sort of decelerates and feels very deliberate, as if the slowing down of the voice mimicked the time slowing down in this guy's drug-addled brain. So working off that read, I had an idea to slow the raindrops down so that the listener is able to sort of hear each raindrop by name. 
And the intention, again, is to pull the listener into the story, into this narrator's brain just a little bit. And this was a really fun sound design idea that I had from Wallace's read, and other people on the team liked it and it stayed in, but I will say that there were a lot of other artistic choices that I tried, a lot of them, um, which the rest of the team would very politely say, please cut this. And so to the sound designers in the room, or even the producers who are sort of dreaming up what the soundscape could be, my first piece of advice is to try the crazy shit that you hear in your head. This is the fun of the medium for us as producers and for the listeners. Go for it. But the second piece of advice is that when your team doesn't like it, trust them, all right? And don't take it personally, which is something I'm still working on. So. Uh, two other decisions, scoring decisions, sound design decisions I want to highlight uh, before we're going to listen to the scene once more with all these notes in mind. When he talks about how his veins feel scraped out, you can sort of hear an example of how scoring can double as sort of uh, conceptual sound design. When we recorded original music for this podcast, the drummer dragged a bow like for a cello across the edge of a cymbal, and I flew that sound just to sort of underline and heighten the feeling of veins being scraped out. And then at the end, there's a door slamming after the line, I knew we'd have an accident in the storm. Bam. The intention was to have the door slam sort of serve as the period. At the end of that sentence, his read is giving this this very final tone. And for me, creatively, that door slam sort of underlined this, this sort of perverted fatalism that this narrator has. So with all of these uh, production uh, notes in mind, I want to listen once more, and you can listen for some of these things. While Hitchhiking, a short story by Dennis Johnson. A salesman who shared his liquor and steered while sleeping. A Cherokee filled with bourbon. A VW no more than a bubble of hashish fumes, captained by a college student. And a family from Marshalltown who head-on'd and killed forever a man driving west out of Bethany, Missouri. I rose up sopping wet from sleeping under the pouring rain, and something less than conscious, thanks to the first three of the people I've already named, the salesman and the Indian and the student, all of whom had given me drugs. At the head of the entrance ramp, I waited without hope of a ride, what was the point even of rolling up my sleeping bag when I was too wet to be let into anybody's car? I draped it around me like a cape. The downpour raked the asphalt and gurgled in the ruts. My thoughts zoomed pitifully. The traveling salesman had fed me pills that made the linings of my veins feel scraped out. My jaw ached. I knew every raindrop by its name. I sensed everything 
before it happened. I knew a certain Oldsmobile would stop for me even before it slowed. And by the sweet voices of the family inside of it, I knew we'd have an accident in the storm. I didn't care. They said they'd take me all the way. So we went through some of the decisions that we made in sound designing, mixing, revising, and there were several more that we didn't talk about. And although there are a lot of very conscious decisions happening, we do not want the listener to feel any of that decision-making process. We want the sound design and the scoring to really be supportive of the language and the way that it's voiced. It's sort of thinking of it like underlining or italics. It doesn't change the word that's on the page, but it changes the way you perceive it. So along these same lines, I want to listen to another scene from this same story. And this is the scene where the car crash takes place. And what I'm going to play you now is my first draft of the sound design. This is the Michael Bay version. The interstate through western Missouri was in that era nothing more than a two-way road, most of it. When a semi-truck came toward us and passed going the other way, we were lost in a blinding spray and a warfare of noises such as you get being towed through an automatic car wash. The wipers stood up and lay down across the windshield without much effect. I was exhausted. And after an hour, I slept more deeply. I'd known all along exactly what was going to happen. But the man and his wife woke me up later, denying it viciously. Oh, no! No! I was thrown against the back of their seat so hard that it broke. I commenced bouncing back and forth. A liquid which I knew right away was human blood flew around the car and rained down on my head. When it was over, I was in the back seat again just as I had been. I raised up and looked around. Our headlights had gone out. The radiator was hissing steadily. Beyond that, I didn't hear a thing. As far as I could tell, I was the only one conscious. As my eyes adjusted, I saw that the baby was lying on its back beside me as if nothing had happened. Its eyes were open and it was feeling its cheeks with its little hands. So I sent this draft to the team and there were some very strong opinions. And then I revised the sound design, and now I'm gonna play you what made it into the final version. The interstate through western Missouri was in that era nothing more than a two-way road, most of it. When a semi-truck came toward us and passed going the other way, we were lost in a blinding spray and a warfare of noises such as you get being towed through an automatic car wash. The wipers stood up and lay down across the windshield without much effect. I was exhausted, and after an hour, I slept more deeply. 
I'd known all along exactly what was going to happen. But the man and his wife woke me up later, denying it viciously. Oh, no! No! I was thrown against the back of their seat so hard that it broke. Except for a little bit of the sound of the windshield wipers, I took out literally every other bit of scoring and sound design. And if I revised it today, I think I would actually get rid of the windshield wipers. Somebody yesterday came up after and he was like, no, no, the windshield wipers are dope. Like, that's the heartbeat. <laughs> um, but I spent hours putting this scene together, and I really thought people were going were gonna to dig it, that it was going to feel like this really immersive experience. But all the other producers on the team said, quite correctly, it's too much. You've got this incredible piece of writing, this incredible use of language, and this fantastic read from Wallace Shawn. Just, just get out of the way. So sound can be immersive, yes, but it can also drown. And we all know what it's like to watch a movie or a TV and have that feeling that our brain is, quote, you know, turning off. There's so much stimulus that our brain shuts down because so little is required of it. So my initial mix of that scene approaches the TV effect. It gets the heart racing, but it just sort of zaps the active part of the brain into submission. And here's why. When I make a decision to use the low, anxious piece of music, I'm dictating a mood that the listener has to experience. When I pile up the sounds, the echoing scream, uh, the screeching brakes, the crunching metal, the baby cooing, the EQ sweep, the heartbeat in the ears effect, I am piling all of these things up and I'm building a sort of wall between the story and the listener. Essentially what I'm doing is I'm putting up that fourth wall and I'm forcing the listener to watch this scene from behind that wall as opposed to being in the scene, helping with their brain to create it. So each sound effect that I pile on there is one less thing for the listener's brain to imagine. And the other thing is I remember reading this scene several times. On the page, it is not at all overdramatic or ominous. The car crash happens, yes. But the more remarkable thing is the way that the narrator describes it with such an odd sense of detachment. So as an English major back in 1999, I had all kinds of theories about this narrator about whether his mystical premonitions are a result of insanity, a result of the pills and the hash, or if he really is Jesus' son, if he really is immortal. But when I listen back to that initial sound mix now, the space for that kind of active thinking, not just the sensory, but the actual sort of philosophizing about the story, that kind of mental involvement, there is no space for it. I don't see how anyone hearing the story for the first time in this way would be able to think about the story. So for me, working on this mix was a sort of a lesson in less is more in the sense that sometimes the less we provide, the more there is for the listener to connect with. All right, so we've been talking about adapting fiction into the realm of sound, but I also want to look at some examples of nonfiction documents. And I want to give a slight trigger warning that the examples we're going to use are from the podcast Stranglers, which is a podcast about the Boston Stranglers, so there will be reference to sexual assault. Now, we all know that the sound of archival tape gives people a very immediate thrill. There's this feeling of time travel and a feeling that we're getting access to something that's been unearthed just for us. And I think that there's a similar thrill in hearing someone read old letters. So Stranglers was a 12-part documentary about the Boston Strangler, 
who raped and strangled 13 women in Boston in the 1960s. Uh, this is a series that I co-produced uh, with Northern Light Productions, or Stitcher co-produced with Northern Light Productions. It was actually, as you can see in there, it was first re released under the Earwolf label, and then we smartly decided to keep the Earwolf label comedy, but that's why it says Earwolf. Um, and I think I saw her, Sharon is here. Sharon Mashihi was one of the uh, co-producers, senior producers on this show, and had a huge hand in like writing script and researching and all kinds of things. Um, in most tellings of this story, the serial killer, Albert DeSalvo, he's, he gets this sort of celebrity spotlight, while the victims are either reduced to a list of names or worse, just lumped into this number, 13, the 13 victims. So one of the things that we wanted to do was create these small scenes that brings the women back to life as human beings. In one episode, we interviewed the granddaughter of one of the victims, and it was really, really powerful to hear this woman who's now older herself talk about the experience of losing her grandma so tragically. Now, the woman in this picture is Sophie Clark, who was another victim of the Boston Strangler, and she was 20 years old in 1962. And to tell her story, we reenacted the letter uh, that she was writing on the night that she was murdered, and I'm going to play you uh, the reenactment now. This is the letter. This is the letter that Sophie was writing to her boyfriend. Oh my God. December 5th, 1962. My dearest Chuck. May this letter find you. December 5th, 1962. My dearest Chuck. May this letter find the man I love well. How is that cold? I feel fine, especially after you called me last night. You're the kind of medicine I need. You can make a person... One afternoon in December 1962, Sophie Clark was in her apartment on Huntington Avenue, a busy commercial street in Boston's Back Bay. As the rain fell outside, she sat at her desk, writing a letter to her fiancé, Chuck, who lived back home in New Jersey. He would be visiting the following week. Today is a nasty day. I do hope the weather is better next week for our sakes. I hope it won't be too late when you get here. I, I know it depends on when you finish work, but you know I'll be sitting here waiting. I fell asleep last night playing an album by the Flamingos. Audrey just called from work. Sophie Clark was a 20-year-old student at the Carnegie Institute of Medical Technology. She was a conscientious young woman who always headed home after school to study. I'll start my homework when I finish this letter, then I'll shift over to the kitchen and cook supper. We're going to have liver tonight cooked in onions and gravy along with mashed potatoes and a vegetable, I guess. Maybe this weekend I'll get around to In the letter, Sophie wrote about what she was going to have for dinner, how she was going to spend that evening. It's the kind of stuff a young couple would text about today. When is your friend Landy going to move in with you? I'll be glad for you because then you'll not have so many expenses. I was going to suggest that you get a phone, but I guess you can do without it. I... That's where Sophie's letter was cut short. At the end of the page, she began a new sentence with the word I. Below that, the page was left blank. It was a habit of mine every day to call Sophie between the hour of 4 and 4.30. And this particular day... So Portland Helmick, who is the host of the show, was also 
uh, one of the researchers and, and the producers. She was really out there, you know, digging up the information. And at the top of the scene, she's in a basement of a guy whose dad was a detective on the case. And Portland is digging through these bins of old documents, and they recorded hours of this, of this uh, table work. And we actually hear the moment where Portland finds this typed copy of the letter. And the audio of that is great because, again, it pulls the listener vicariously into that moment of discovery. And then we crossfade into a reenactment, which, again, is pulling the listener in even further into the sound of the room and into Sophie's mind as she's composing the letter. And I also want to call out a line of really great script writing here where Portland frames everything as, quote, the kind of stuff young people would text about today. So again, this is a very finite decision when it comes to language, that it serves, again, to pull listeners in a little bit closer because not everybody today writes letters. So what we're trying to do is say to you millennials who are texting or whatnot, this is your story too. Right? Sophie is just like you and me, and if your story matters and my story matters, then Sophie's story matters. So I think this scene was a really effective interweaving of reenactment and sound design and music and script writing, and it's constructed in a way where the letter is the centerpiece, and everything else is working to bring the listener into closer connection with that letter, and thus with the character, with this human being, Sophie Clark. Now, for the last example, I want to look at another scene from Strangler's episode nine, uh, which is called Testimony. Now, this is a scene where we were adapting a scene from a court transcript. Although uh, Albert DeSalvo confessed to being the Boston Strangler, detectives never found enough hard evidence to press charges. But they did have enough evidence to charge him for a string of sexual assaults that he'd committed before the stranglings. And they also had witness testimony from four of the women that he'd assaulted. Now, the court transcripts themselves are an extremely bland, bureaucratic record. They contain only what the witness said, what the lawyer said, what the judge said. There are no extraneous descriptions of the scene or the mood in the room. So in a sense, when we're adapting this, it's the exact opposite of fiction. It is the plainest record of language. And yet, when you read through it and you read the testimony, you know that these moments in the courtroom had to be incredibly tense especially now considering all of the things that have come in the news in the last two years. We know that this is going to be extremely emotional content. And that's what we want to animate, with the purpose, again, of bringing these people to life and taking the listener beyond that sort of tabloid depiction of the Boston Strangler as this boogeyman from a long time ago. We're trying to show the victims as real people. Now, in this case, it was very high profile, so there were reporters in the room, and their accounts fill in sort of the emotional detail that is lacking here. Uh, a newspaper reported that one witness, quote, glared at DeSalvo with cold fury, and that another, quote, faltered and appeared almost at a loss for words as she recounted uh, what happened in graphic detail. Um, so I will say that in that respect, tracking this session uh, with Audrey Rappaport, she was the actor who does uh, uh, the part of, of Sarah Martin that you'll hear. Um, I felt a very different kind of responsibility toward getting the right read. We actually did lots of takes and had lots of alts just in case we wanted to go with something more emotional or if we felt it was too much. We were trying to gather as many options because we wanted to make sure that this was accurate. Is that, you know, maybe not accurate is not, maybe not the right word because we don't know what she sounded like, but we wanted to be able to hedge our bets when we were in the mix process. Um, so I guess what I want to do now is play this for you, and I will note that in the episode, the full reenactment does include more graphic detail. 
which again, we felt was very, very important to include, but for today, I'm just gonna sort of fade out uh, before some of that. Um, and one thing to listen to in this reenactment, uh, two things actually, the breathing. Uh, the performance, the reenactment, I, I don't like using the word performance, it's not acting to me, reenacting is the appropriate term, um, but she really starts to do some work with the breathing on the microphone. And the other thing is the music, and the music I, I want you to listen to, I still think it works. I think it helps to support and heighten the emotion, but I have to say, given uh, what's happened in the last two years in terms of the victims facing down Larry Nassar, Andrea Constant with Bill Cosby, Dr. Blasey Ford, uh, I don't think if I mix this today, I would add the music there. I don't think that the modern ear would actually need the music to feel the sort of emotional weight of the scene. So that's just an interesting note that, that occurred to me this week that social context, the moment that you're mixing it, does play uh, into, into the choices you make. So uh, let's give a listen. And we proceeded in a workmanlike way to put the witnesses on the stand who were victims of one kind or another. Mrs. Martin to the stand, please. Would you like to be seated, young lady? No. All right, fine. Would you state your name, please? Sarah Martin. Are you married or single? Married. Do you have children? Yes. One. On the morning of October 27th, 1964, Sarah Martin's family left their Cambridge apartment while she slept. Sarah Martin is a pseudonym to protect the victim's identity. And who was in the apartment with you, Mrs. Martin? Nobody. But later on... Will you tell us specifically what happened? <clears throat> uh, I, I awoke at a quarter of ten in the morning, and there was a man standing in my bedroom doorway. Can you identify the man who was standing in your doorway? Yes, I can. Who is that? The man standing... May the record show that the witness has indicated Albert DeSalvo, the defendant, as the man who was standing in her bedroom. We stipulate to the identification. How did DeSalvo react when they were testifying? When the women testified, he was not very emotional, but he certainly looked sad. Indeed, if one had to characterize his demeanor throughout the trial, it was stoic, generally, but sad. What was the first thing that was said between you and the defendant after he was standing in the bedroom? I, I asked him what he was doing there, and he said that he knew me. He said, you know me. I said, no, I don't. He said, I'm a police detective, and he wanted to ask a few questions. I said, please go outside until I get dressed. He started walking towards the bed, and I asked him to please leave again, and then he approached the bed and bent over me, and I realized... I, 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 could you, could you slow it down a little, please, Mrs. Martin? Apparently his honor is having a little difficulty in following your testimony. Just take your time now. <clears throat> As he approached the bed, I got up and I screamed. And when I screamed, he pulled out a knife. Keep your voice up. <clears throat> he said he wouldn't hurt me and... So in putting this scene together, it was done almost entirely on paper first. The, the court transcript is a very long document, and the scenes that we're taking are the ones where the emotional content is. There are a lot of other sort of 
um, more sort of scene setting, biographical stuff about the witness. So that's one thing when you're adapting a, tr a transcript like this, you gotta find the content that works for your story. And you also, in that respect, have to be careful. You can't make editorial decisions that, that cut content in a way that's, that's dubious. You still have to be very, very truthful to the, to the source document. Um, also, you can hear how we're interweaving script writing and we're interweaving a little bit of tape. That's the lawyer, F. Lee Bailey, who was actually Albert DeSalvo's lawyer. Um, and it's Portland talking to F. Lee Bailey. And we were pulling parts of that interview, again, doing all of this in script, in writing first, so that while we're in the court scene, we now have somebody who was there filling in some other, some other detail. Um, so, and that's working with and slightly against the emotional. It takes us out of the emotion for a minute, and then we go back in. So there's a little bit of a dynamic going on there. But getting back to the breaths, when I was tracking this scene with Audrey, it really wasn't until a few takes in that she started to add the deep breaths and really go for some different emotions. And I was listening in the headphones, I was reading lines with her across the table, and just sitting in the studio, I would close my eyes to hear the take. I would try not to look at her because again, I, did, I had to pay attention on, on, on just the voice. And when she started doing the longer pauses and the breathing, I honestly started to have that transported feeling that that air in between her words was the air, the tense air in the courtroom. Um, and there were a couple takes that I think even went a little bit farther than this in terms of emoting. Um, and I talked to somebody afterward yesterday, I thought maybe this was a little too far. And again, we're making decisions. And will everybody think it's the right decision? No, but again, we're working as a team, as a production team, deciding which take is the best. But again, to the point of these breaths, I think it's an, a really, really important thing um, when you listen to the scene in headphones, especially, those breaths are right inside your head. It really is, again, like when we're talking about this, like a shot list, it's a very emotional close-up. Uh, and I was talking to producer Brendan Baker about the value of breaths in a performance. He was telling me about his experience recording the Wolverine podcast and how the listeners were all adapting to acting for a microphone as opposed to a camera. And one of the things that they realized after a day or two of shooting, shooting was that they that their breaths were really being, they would hear the playback and they're like, oh, the breath work is so important. And uh, this is the way Brendan put it when I was talking to him. I wrote it down because I thought it was more uh, eloquent than how I might have put it. Um, he said that the sound of a breath can be the equivalent of a person's facial expression. He also said that including the sound of a breath is, quote, a real editorial choice. So that sort of brings us to this last idea that when we are putting these pieces together, when we're doing it in script, when we're doing it in sound, as engineers and producers, our role is to make those choices, those decisions on a very, very finite level. To pay special attention to the language as it is on the page and how it is on the ear. And as a sound designer, I love all the tools of building a soundscape. It is a real legitimate joy for me, but I am constantly reminding myself to make sure that the sounds are serving the language and not getting, again, between the story and the listener. So that sort of brings us to the end of, of, of the presentation, but before we go to questions, what I wanna do is I wanna give the last word to Maya Angelou, uh, who says it best. Uh, I borrowed the name of this presentation from an excerpt of her interview with the Paris Review, um, and it was a great excerpt that we pulled and we used in the first episode, and it serves as a, a sort of thesis statement for that podcast um, in terms of this was the Paris Review podcast is all about loving language and trying to bring people into contact with really beautiful pieces of writing. So the other thing I will say is if you gave me this transcript of her quotation, her full quotation, 
and you said, here's an actor, never in a million years would I ever, ever <laughs> to be able, would I be able to get it to sound uh, as good as she says it in the live interview. So I'll give the last word to Maya Angelou and then maybe we'll do some questions. When I'm writing, I am trying to find out who I am, who we are, what we're capable of, how we feel, how we lose and win and stand up and go on from darkness into darkness. I'm trying for that, but I'm also trying for the language. I'm trying to see how it can really sound. I'm so, I really love language. I love it for what it does for us. It allows us at once to explain the pain and the glory, the nuances and the delicacies of our existence. I mean, how we are, how human beings are, how cruel we are, how kind we are, how subtly uh, brutal and overtly cowardly we are. Language helps us to say that. That's why I love it. Thanks. Thanks so much for the talk. It was one of the most inspiring things I heard in a long time. I just feel like going to my room and adapting something to the story. Um, it was awesome. Thanks for that. Um, I, I have a comment and a disclaimer. I am a sound designer, so you know, take that with a grain of salt. And I would just like you to comment my comment, if possible. Um, my feeling is that like, I just hope our production teams don't get music too much out of the way. And, and like, yeah, I love language too. And music is a language. And this is an audience, like, as you said, you're choosing the, the actor, right, to, to speak about something. You are narrowing down the possibilities. Um, when you chose the sound design for that crash, you're doing the same. Um, why these or that, you know, voice actor or this and that writer are so much more important than the work that you choose to do on that piece. Um, as far as for the listener, I don't think anyone comes with that background. You know, it, you're just analyzing and listening for the whole. Um, personally, I really liked your first draft. I, I think it was really amazing. Um, you know, sometimes I like movies and I just read the script of the movie and I want to get that experience. But mostly I like to watch the movie with the particular composer and a particular actor and a particular lighting and editing. Um, so that's just my comment, how I felt towards that. Because that. you're like a person that really like love uh, written language, but you're also a sound designer, so it's really cool for me to hear that. So if you have any comments. Sure. Um, and I would say that, that I'm with you, and, and I think that there, I'm a musician as well, um, and I love music as much as I love language, and I agree with that it is a language. Um, so there are spots where you can have the music step forward. It's sort of genre dependent, dependent piece dependent. Uh, there are other stories that we did where the music was really staying out of the way, and then when we had the space to, you know, when we did original scoring, we let the musicians be a little bit more vocal and melodic in their work. But we made sure that where that posted was in a place that wouldn't trample the language. And again, this is a podcast that is all about adapting fiction. Now, I did some work on a show called Blacklist Table Reads, 
uh, which was full movie scripts. Uh, the Blacklist, I'm not sure if you're familiar with The Blacklist, but um, it's this thing in LA with, with these, do you work with The Blacklist? Somebody raised it or you just know what it is? Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but it's like, you know, these un, un uh, produce movie scripts and uh, that sort of like have been talked about by a lot of people in Hollywood. And uh, I forget Franklin, what's his name? Franklin Leonard, um, who is just a beautiful human being. So he, what he does is he then tries to take these movie scripts and get them produced. He made a podcast where they would take some of the unproduced scripts and we would sound design them from beginning to end. And in those instances, we were going for more of a filmic, literal uh, sound design uh, approach. Again, there were certain points where if like, somebody said toaster, you didn't have to hear the toaster. You know what I mean? Like, there were mo moments where you wanted to relax, but in that particular production, it was more like that first mix. And I appreciate that some people like that first mix. There's part of me that does, but there's also part of me that understands that the impetus of the podcast is to let the language be the central thing. Now, the podcast medium, you know, the radio medium, going into the podcast medium, going into like the next phase of audio production, I think there are going to be more and more uh, genres, more and more opportunities for shows where the music is more forward and is more part of the emotional language. Uh, and when those, I, I make some of those on my own, um, you know, and dream of some of those on my own. And so I'm looking forward to, to, to some of that podcast work. So. Um, yeah, I, I hear your comment and I agree with you. Um, in the, uh, the, the letter uh, in the Strangler piece, the actress has this wonderful little move where she, she says, I, I, right? It's a vocal tick that is the sound of spoken language as opposed to written language. Whereas in a short story, um, you have something very precisely chosen. Can you comment about the kind of latitude that, uh, as a director, you give uh, your actors, depending on whether it's a, a story, a letter, a transcript from a, a, a trial, uh, in introducing that kind of um, subtlety of spoken language. Mm -hmm. Yeah, again, you don't, you don't want to add words. Um, and if you're going to condense a transcript or a condensed letter, again, you want to be very, very conscious of doing so in the appropriate way that you're not changing the meaning. But I think especially like in transcripts, uh, giving the actor the latitude to, look, you know what the emotional context is. I mean, that's what, that's what theater work is. You know, like I've seen plays that I've read and I'm always surprised when there's like an ad lib or something different there that happened because the actor was feeling it in the moment. Um, and that's cool. I think that's part of the work. So for me, again, it's part of like getting a good actor in there who knows that they can do that um, and then making sure you give them permission to but then also just being conscious that, that what they're doing isn't veering too far away. Um, does, that, does that sort of get at the question? Yeah. Um, I've kind of a nitty gritty question about coaching. Um, I coach hosts as part of my job and you talked about how like the beginning is really important and that the notes will kind of carry through to the end if you get the beginning right. And I've totally found that and I sometimes really struggle with how many notes I should give up top, like whether coaching at the very beginning will put someone off and make them kind of anxious? Should you go through it once and then go back and give all your notes? So I wonder if you could speak to like how you create that environment in the first part of coaching so that people can sort of get launched in the right way, right. like give enough notes but not too many. So if you have the luxury of time to do script read-throughs and you can do it again by committee where you have an entire production team on and you're 
you're reading the script and then you're hearing the tape, uh, you start to hear, obviously, you start to hear the lines in the language that don't work out loud. Oh, I can't, it's that, that look good on page, but like we need to tweak that or I need to just say it this way. Um, when you can do it that way, then you're actually getting everybody's opinion and you can be giving notes, oh, hey, Portland, when you read that line, get a little low or like, you know, give us a downward tone to end. Oh, okay, cool. Write those notes in the script. So if you have the luxury of doing that, great. If your host is part of actually writing the script, I mean, that's like, again, a luxury because then they're starting to put things in their own voice. They're already reading them in their head. Um, if you're coming into a session where it's like, hey, we wrote the script for you. You've got, you know, somebody who's a super busy whatever and they come in, they take the script and they're like, okay, they're making notes. Sometimes you got to go paragraph by paragraph. Um, but also as a producer, you, you got to come in and, you know, this is sort of like the shot list. You got to know that like, hey, when you get to this paragraph, we're thinking music's going to come in. Uh, we want you to be really s sort of deliberate in your in your read and writing those emotional notes in. I do a lot of things. I don't know. Uh, there's a term for it, but like italics, or I put like ellipses, or like underlining, or like I have like little ways to make notes to me. So it's like, hey, when you get to this part, I put this ellipses in because I want you to leave a breath here. You know, starting to like actually build some of the sonic elements of language into the written version of the script can be helpful. Um, so if you're tight on time, then I encourage you to like, as a producer, know kind of how you want it. Um, those kinds of tracking sessions, I always find that they're a little different than fiction and they, they tend to be sort of more of a scene by scene. Um, and sometimes it's good, like, okay, cool. Great take of that. Uh, the next section that we're getting into is introducing the court scene. So now we need to shift into a little bit, like, you know, you got to tell them there's going to be four minutes, five minutes of tape, and then you're coming in. So a lot of it is, is producer uh, um, preparation. Um, and then again, if you have the luxury of being able to do read-throughs, like that's usually where you nail it. Hi. Um, thank you for the talk, it's wonderful. And I have two quick questions. One, what's your process for choosing and or commissioning music? And two, how do you treat the voice? Because I could see there were a lot of plugins there. And I'm just curious about that. Thank you. Um, so let me talk about uh, the plugins first. So, Every voice is different. Somebody comes in, they're a little bit more sibilant, they're a little bit lo more low content. So my typical stable of plugins is Renaissance EQ. I'm a Waves plugin bundle guy. But EQ, compressor, maybe a de-esser in there, and I start with that. If they're recorded in a studio, then you throw the RX-7 vocal denoise on the top. But really, I'm just trying to like EQ the, the voice so that it sounds super clear. And some people, like if they're super up on the mic, then I'm trying to like pull that back. Um, but it's, it's, it's pretty minimal processing. Uh, as far as, or, or what your question is about how do I uh, select the music or how do I go about doing sort of custom scoring? Yeah. Um, so for this project, for the Paris Review project and for the Stranglers, I was able to convince the folks at Stitcher to give me, you know, not a huge music budget, but a good enough music budget that I could hire, uh, commission some uh, musicians. And for Stranglers, I worked with one composer, and then for the Paris Review, and she was sort of working in the box, doing everything in her home studio, Allison Lane Brown, she is fantastic. Um, and then for the Paris Review, David Sieri, who's a, a pianist and composer, a friend of mine in New York, um, we went into a studio for three days. But in both situations, and I did se similar sessions like that for, we did a scoring library for Longest Shortest Time, uh, I did one for Startup at Gimlet. And when we would do those sessions, I, we would come in, we actually did a lot of pre-prep work and we sort of knew, hey, we need to have six pieces that are like in this mode, six pieces that are in this mode. We're sort of thinking about like, you know, 
not the eight pack, but maybe the 24 pack of crayons, like what, what are the different emotions that we might need in the course of this season? We don't know all the content we're gonna use, but we know that the moods are gonna hit this. Um, and then we would go in and try and, you know, we would actually have chord progression sheets that were pretty loose and let everybody sort of improvise around it. Um, but we were trying to do sort of sectional stuff where it's like, all right, give me like 16 bars of just the drums and the bass. And then if I only need eight, I can cut it. Um, and then that way you're fading that up and I say, okay, then we'd point to the piano player and he would come in. So we were building these sectional shifts where it could go from simple to complex and, you know, and then also asking them to do sections where they're more melodic or more vocal on their instrument so that if we get to the end of the story, again, you know, finding space for like the musicians actually to sort of step forward and, and have some personality, which works, if you listen to the Paris Review, we do a lot of that. Um, and it really works great in that show because it's more of like a sort of a, a mon not a montage, but it's, you know, it's the, 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 the through line is a little bit different. Um, but then when you're selecting them for the actual show, you know, now you've got this general uh, scoring library and sometimes you're like, yep, that's the piece, that's working, boom, boom, you're pulling it in, or sometimes you're trying six pieces uh, based on the mood, based on what this, the, the text is suggesting, and then sometimes nothing you have works. And so for some shows, like the Paris Review, we sort of supplement with the APM Music Library, but a lot of times if it was a scene that I really wanted something specific, I had part of my music budget set aside to go back to Dave Sieri, and I would have him do sort of one-offs, that he would sort of make it home. And we did that probably a half dozen times uh, on the Paris Review. Um, it's, that's like, that was probably one of the more fun parts of the process for me was like working with the musicians. Um, does that answer? Yeah, cool. Um, oh good, it is live. Um, <laughs> I found your comments about uh, soundtrack density and pacing particularly uh, interesting and applicable because my show is basically You Unchained. The premise is that sound design and music are active storytelling partners. But what, in trying to make that work, it really brought focus on the pacing. And so what I found is when I edit the narration, I do a lot of moving things by tiny amounts. When you're working with somebody like Wallace Shawn, obviously they're doing most of the work, they're excellent actors. Do you ever find places where you need to edit for pacing specifically, not just a, you know, I, I don't just mean because other things intercede, but I mean just for the flow of, of the read itself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even with Wallace Shawn, he would give us a read. What I always tell readers is, if you read too fast, I can't, I can't, uh, it's very difficult for me to sort of impose a more patient pacing. So I always just say, like, Aaron, the fact of it, like, if you think it's going to be a long beat there, give me a long beat. And if I need to tighten it, I'll tighten it. If I need to make it a little bit bigger, I got the room to do it. Um, but yeah, with every read, no matter how good the read is, once you get it into the mix, you put a piece of music in and you're like, well, that, that piece of music has to go the eight bars until it hits that cymbal splash and then it's coming out and then the voice comes back in. So sometimes the, the, if you're really into something that's you know, heavily using the voice of music, the music starts to dictate the length of the beat. Um, but yeah, everything, if I, I had a visual and I, uh, um, I don't have it with me, but it was a comparison of the Wallace Shawn read versus we had Mark Marin read a story and we weren't able to direct, he just sort of did it in his garage and sent it to us. And he, his read is incredible, but it is just like this rapid fire read. And I was gonna, it's a, if the, the, the image on the top is Wallace Shawn where it's a nice long chunk of audio and then sort of a little room tone, a nice long chunk. And the, the Mark Marin, Dan O'Donnell actually worked on it, uh, doing the pacing. And it's just like this crazy, crazy visual of those, those vertical lines of room tone that he's putting in just to give that space. Um, 
And I was actually talking to someone from the production team for Caliphate yesterday, and they, they were saying, yeah, that scene, like we were very conscious of adding these little beats, like just like these little tiny beats in order to keep the pacing. And there's a musical sense. I think there's an intuitive sense for people, even if you're not a musician, you're hearing the rhythm of the speech and you're following it. And as a listener, if something, somebody rushes, lean in and put a little space there. Hi, John. Oh, hi. Oh, hi. Sharon. Uh, hi. Um, I, I wanted to ask about the Paris Review thing. It's actually a burning question for me now whenever I'm making stuff. You know that it's raining, but you don't hear the rain until a few paragraphs after you know that it's raining. And so I wonder, because sometimes you want to hear the rain first, and then the person references the rain. Sometimes you want to hear it right after. Like, how do you decide when to introduce it? Yeah, it's it's... It sort of depends, I guess, how it figures into the story. Um, like for, for this this one, you know, we hear the rain at the top. It sort of sets the scene, and we did these things called title cards, which was sort of we use that as 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 a storytelling audio storytelling space to establish scene a lot of time. And then we would we use that trick several times where we would bring the rain in, and then it would fade under, so the person was in the world, and you didn't have to hear the rain keep going. Because that's it's it is a challenge, and I've never found like it's scene to scene dependent. I think because sometimes having the ambi run underneath for like a minute works great. And other times it's, it, it just gets grating and you wanna, you wanna get out of it. So I, I don't know if I have like a super clear answer other than to say like, uh, try it several ways. Uh, also ask, you know, again, if you, if you have the luxury of a production team or even just friends who will listen to it for you, try it different ways and be like, you know, have them listen and then ask like, is the ambi getting in the way? Is that getting at the answer? Because that's a, that's a difficult question. I don't know if... if... I, I guess, I mean, or maybe do you remember? Because it was just so perfect in there. I wonder if you just remember how you were like, oh, right here. Well, this is where it comes back. This one I also... Now I'm remembering that in this first scene, we actually had the rain ambi run under the first couple of paragraphs. And even the music sort of like was tapering off just for like the first couple sentences. And people were like, no, 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 we know we're there. Like, get out, you know? Um, but no, I think it's it's really just like a scene to scene thing. Like we did a couple scenes where uh, it was um, somebody in it. There's a story. It's about a, a Nazi. He's is one of the, the the Nazis waiting for trial, and he's in prison. Um, it's a great story. But it, like we sort of had this prison ambi, and it was it just it it had in order to set that scene, it was actually like very complex. Um, sound, there's lots of people in the back. And so we really struggled with like, where are the parts that we put it in? And I think in that story, we ended up choosing like a lot of like the interstitial moments. So there'd be a transition, you'd sort of hear it, again, to pull the person into the scene, and then you would like try and get it out of the way. Um, yeah, that's a difficult one. Thank you, everybody. That was the Q&A from the second presentation of I Love Language. Now, here's the Q&A from the first day. Hello. Uh, can you take us a little bit through how your actual, like, I, it was cool to actually see your tracks laid out, um, but can you take us through, like, your actual logistical process? Like, when you're talking about, you know, putting, uh, putting a sound design, putting a sound scene together, like, are you, this is, might sound a little juvenile, but is it just like, hmm, I feel some little piano here, or a little guitar? Can you, like, just take us through, like, your thought process when you're actually putting it together? Sure. Um, Sort of in the same vein of coaching a read, like the, the most important thing I think for doing a sound design is to read, read the material, absorb it, make notes. But before you even start doing sound design, start sketching out uh, where you want music to come in. You know, and I, I have like a specific way of formatting a script where it's like 
the host is in bold, fully left justified. Anything that's tape is indented. Anything that's music says M-U-X in blue. Anything that's sound design says S-D in red. And so what I'm trying to do is create a, a visual representation of where I see these things coming in. And I think that when you, when you do that first, again, it's, it's the same idea that if you do the preparation and the work at the top of the process, then when you get in there, uh, you've done your creative thinking and it just sort of flows more naturally. Um, but the other thing is, again, if, if you don't want to do a lot of revision, the next best thing you can do after being prepared yourself is to talk to your, your production team. And we had a lot of conversations, Brendan and Chris and I, when it came to the Paris Review, and we were doing fiction, just sort of like, ooh, this scene here. And the great thing about that, getting sort of other people who aren't doing the sound design to think about sound designers, the great thing about that is they think of things that I would never think of. But also they will veto, I've, I learned, if you get the buy-in early, then you don't get those emails saying you need to cut that shit. So <laughs> getting the sort of group consensus is great in terms of widening the creative net, uh, but also just sort of fine-tuning the process afterward. So then once you actually get into the session, session organization is super important. Again, I'm doing similar thing to the script. The host is at the top, that's your main voice. Uh, any interviews are the next tracks. Uh, and then if you've got sort of field tapes or clips, a couple stereo tracks for that. Uh, and then I have music one, music two, music three, music four. And then I have a music bus that they're all going to. And then I have uh, sound effects one, two, three, four, sometimes five. And then I have two tracks for Ambi. So I lay that all out. And I just have a template. So anytime I'm doing a project like that, I open the template and, and I'm set. Um, and again, having it organized like that, I know that if I have Ambi, I put those at the bottom because those are the things that are kind of anchoring. And then you'll see the little literal sound effects or the artistic ones. Um, and then the music, you know, sometimes you're using stereo mixes of stuff that you're pulling off APM. Sometimes there's a, a cool budget and you record your own music for it. Um, and if, if you've done your own scoring library, then it's a matter of sort of trying to pull stuff from that. If you can do custom scoring, I mean, that's, that's the dream. Um, does that start to answer your question? Is there any part of the, other part of the process that you're curious about? because I love the logistics. If everybody else wants to leave me in the sky, we'll talk logistics all day, yeah. Hey, I actually have a logistical question too. Oh. Um, so mine's more about the read, and I'm wondering if you can get a little bit granular about like, in terms of the Wallace Shawn example, um, would you have him read like a paragraph at a time and then keep doing that paragraph until it was perfect? Would you like, how do you find, does it depend on, on the reader and you sort of get a rhythm with them? Like, how do you um, get that perfect read? And then also, have you ever had a really bad read? And how do you get through that? Like, do you have any tips for just like changing the scene completely so that someone gives a better read? Right. Um, I have had, let me just sort of work in reverse. I did have a very, very, very bad reader um, who was a friend of mine. It's, uh, <laughs> And he had the right voice, and we were able to get the takes, but it literally took hours in the studio going line by line, almost me reading it as I heard it, and then him, and him echoing it. And that's sort of like a last-ditch thing. It's like, look, if that's who you've got, then you, again, there's a sliding scale. If you have a great reader, you're going to do the notes up top, and it's going to fly. And then if you have a bad reader, you know, you're going to have to spend more time in, in the actual full body of the read, you know, working things through line by line. Now, Wallace, again, what I was saying with him, we spent a lot of time at the top talking about, he said, now, who is this guy? 
And do you think this actually happened? And he had questions for me about the story. And I said, I don't know, what do you think? And he goes, well, I don't know. I said, well, then let's leave it ambiguous. You know, so we sort of, we, he wanted to talk through it. He actually wanted to take the time. And uh, I, when he came in, I said, what is your time constraint? You're a busy, beautiful man. And he said, I love Dennis. I want to get this read right. So we worked through the beginning. And then he did a great first take. And I said, that was great. But I, I sort of let him go. But all I was doing in the control room is I had the script. And I would mark. I'd say, eh, he's, either he swallowed that word or Ooh, this is getting towards a part where I know I've done my prep and I know I want sound effects or music coming in here. So I got to get him to do a line that decelerates. It has more of a downward tone. So it's cueing, this is a point to either think or take a break, right? Um, so with him, it was, it was the dream, okay? And then also when we're doing these tracking sessions, again, there's other people in the room. When we did the Dick Cavett one, which was a really, really fun read to do, um, it's Dick Cavett doing a Salter story. And he is, he was so much fun. I still have to put together the supercut of the, all of the cuss words. <laughs> um, but he wanted to do things. He was like, look, I want to go paragraph by paragraph, page by page. And so he would talk to us. And that's how he wanted to work. But again, he didn't really have a time that he had to get out. Um, we did a read with Stockard Channing doing, uh, reenacting an interview. She plays the part of Dorothy Parker. So this is like a great get. And uh, small anecdote, she was in, in uh, London doing a play. So she was on in a studio there. And I was at home on the phone sort of just listening to her read. And even on the phone, I was hearing this, this crinkling sound. And I was like, Miss Channing, are you, are you wearing a leather jacket by chance? And she said, yeah. I said, I don't think Dorothy Parker was wearing a leather jacket in this. And I can hear it moving. You know, so listening for even those details is important. But for her, she had time to do one take. And she had to go. And I said, do you have time to do a second take? She said, no, you're going to get one. I said, great, will you at least stick around and let me do five or six pickups? And so then I had to mark and be sort of super organized. And then there were parts of that interview that her read, we wanted to use it in the episode, but the read just sort of wasn't good enough. Um, it, we didn't quite get the take we wanted, but a lot of it was great. Um, and actually, if you listen to that interview, the person who plays the role of the interviewer is Anna Sale from Death, Sex, and Money. And her performance in that actually plays beautifully off of Stockard, who's playing sort of an older Dorothy Parker. Um, so that starts to answer your question as far as it's dependent on who you're working with. But again, it's really important before the session to say, like, how long can we get you for? Um, and again, other actors who are uh, maybe not to the level of Wallace Shawn, they're willing to hang out for like a couple hours and really work through things. And, and that can be really fun, but can, it can also get to the point where like they want to do a sixth take and you're like, no, 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 I've got it. So once you've got a line, you just tell them you've got it. But there's also session organization. So if you you can do it. I, I do, I'm a, a music engineer as well. And so like you can use Pro Tools, the playlist, and do take one, and then take two. And then that way, Pro Tools is auto naming your files, like Sean.01, Sean02. Um, or you can do them all in one thing. But you got to somehow, whatever your, 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 your system is, just be avidly taking notes and dropping markers. Oh, I love that take, writing down time code. If there's two people in the room, it's helpful. Somebody's like, oh, that one's good. And somebody else is jotting. Um, but sometimes these sessions move really fast, and sometimes they move really slow. Um, and as somebody once told me, you just have to be prepared to move at the speed of creativity. So, so I work at Audible, and we do a lot of literature, sound designing stuff. And one thing that I have struggled with um, is on projects where there are like vast tracts of text, or just a really long thing that you don't want to necessarily sound design in a aggressive way. 
Um, how do you create expectations for ambience or other kinds of sound to come through in a way that where it doesn't surprise the listener and feels kind of graceful and minimalist? Because that's, that's a thing that I sometimes struggle with. I would say the first thing you want to do, again, is in the script, identify the parts that, uh, that feel like transition points. Um, you know, if you're moving from one scene to the next, and then create space. And then it's all about sort of gradually bringing the ambience up. But if you have just sort of a read that doesn't stop, if the pacing is just sort of constant, then yeah, when something starts fading in, people are like, wait, wait, where am I? And does this have to do with the old scene or the past? So part of it is, you know, again, pacing the read. Um, and part of the work of pacing a read is as the director of the read, knowing where you want it to slow down, um, you can actually, again, coach a reader to slow down the pace of their voice to indicate and have a downward tone to indicate it's the end of a scene. Things like that can start to set the, the listener's ear up to expect that you're, you're making a transition into, into a new world. Um, and then I think a lot of it is just mixing, you know, how, how gradually the sound builds in, um, how gradually it departs, where it departs. Um, does this start to answer your question? Is there any, anything else? Yeah, um, but, okay, cool. If there's anything else on that, but yeah, the, the long swaths of read, those are the ones where, you know, if you know it's gonna be a long swath, the other thing is like, you have to make sure that the read is really good there, uh, that it's gonna, that it can hold the person's attention, the listener's attention on its own. Hi, um, can you speak a little bit about tracking with uh, non-actors and best practices for communicating with them when maybe they're not doing what you want? Um, the one thing that, well, I guess this is true of, non, of actors and non-actors, but non-actors especially, they're like, how do you want me to do it? How do you want me to do it? And so you got to come into that session knowing how you want them to do it. Um, and if you don't, then the two of you are going to have to work through it in, in the moment. And again, that can be very painful where you're, you're doing take after take after take after take after take to get just the right one. And then you have to stitch all those lines together. So th that's really it. It's like... You have to, as the audio producer, know how you want it to sound, uh, especially with non-actors. Thank you. I have a question about uh, when you have the budget and the luxury of doing original music. Just wondering about timing and sequence. So, um, you know, I, I've done theater and dance and some film work before where you have the thing and then it gets scored by the composer. You kind of hand it over to them and they watch it or they make the music for the thing that already exists? Is that how you've approached it, or does it come more along with the rest of the audio? Um, so even to have a budget to score, to get original scoring, is, it's, is in my mind a blessing um, in projects like that. It's, it's a luxury. Um, the budgets aren't quite to the point where you can hire a composer to just sort of be on call, to send them scenes and things like that. Um, so the, pr the approach that I have done in both the Paris Review and with Stranglers, I worked with two composer musician friends of mine, and what we did is we got together and, excuse me, we sort of talked about what is the general basket of music that we can create that is going to be able to supply sort of, I hate to say the word neutral, I've says, oh, give me some neutral music there. I don't know what that means, but I'm going to say it. You know, like that's sort of that music that's neutral in the sense that it's not obtrusive, um, but it, there can be like neutral but propulsive, neutral but creepy, neutral but meditative, you know? Just these things that sort of, they can play in the back, they can just hang on one note, whatever. And so you, what I've done with these two things is you do an initial session or an initial batch of music where you contract them 
and say, we're, like for Paris Review, we went into the studio for three days and it was a blast and we just sort of improvised, but we knew going in what we wanted to improvise around, what were the chord progressions, things like that. Um, with Stranglers... And then, we sorry, were you paying them for the, for the time or for the product that came out of it? We paid them for uh, the time. So my friend David Sieri, who's the lead composer on the Paris Review, um, uh, he, he got sort of paid the most because I did a bunch of pre-session work with him. He came and met with us at the Paris Review, the editor and Brendan and I, and we just sort of sat around and talked about what kind of music do we want? And never, you know, be careful of jazz because it's the Paris Review and poetry and you don't want to fall into the beat hole. So um, we, we just sort of conceptually talked about that kind of stuff with Dave. And then I paid him more as like the sort of session leader and for pre-session work and post-session work. And then the other guys were, you know, we just did a work for hire contract and we're gonna do a three or four day session. There was no rehearsals. These guys all played together. So the, the chemistry was there. Um, and we, we made a really, really impressive uh, collection of sound cues. And we were recording everything to stems. So the, the sound engineer there was printing the drums, mixing them, printing them down to a drum stem. The bass was going to a bass stem, the guitars, uh, the, the piano. And so what that does, and then there was also a full mix. And then what that does is it gives you the ability to take a song and then deconstruct the arrangement or use the full mix. And then later you just use the drums and the bass. And I've generated sound catalogs for startup and also for longest, shortest time doing the same thing where it's stemmed out. So these songs have, you can take one cue, one song and use it six different ways. Um, but in terms of the sessions, you know, it's, it can be manageable if you have a specific like question that you want to talk about after as far as like what a budget can look like, I'd be happy to talk to you about it. Um, and sort of what I negotiated with the guys, they felt was fair and it fit, you know, it was a good day rate for them. Uh, they enjoyed the work. But in, in both cases, after that initial batch of music, you know, you're scoring something and, and you're pulling something in that you know, know you, you think will fit and it doesn't fit. You try something else, it doesn't fit. Both of those composers, I kept them on and kept some room in the budget to sort of do one-offs. So for the Sophie Clark scene that we played, I, did, I didn't have anything in our library that would work. So I cut everything together. I found like a sound-alike that I might use, and then I sent it to Allison and sort of gave her the parameters. And she worked very fast and sent me back the song with all the stems. I muted everything but the piano. Um, and even those things, it's the, the way I negotiated it with her, it was sort of like, we will pay you per piece. Uh, and it worked out where she was happy and we were really happy. So it's sort of a mixture of two, doing a session before and then finding somebody who's willing to do the one-offs. Yeah. Hi. Um, so I have a question about reenactments um, and, and emotion. Like, obviously, it is very compelling when you have a read in which you have all of the breaths that have all of the feelings. But you're also kind of like putting your own spin on something that actually happened. So like in the case of this transcript. So how much is like, how much license do you have to say, this is probably what it sounded like, so we're gonna make it sound like this versus, uh, you know. I mean, in that I scene, be true to it. we were able to sort of corroborate from the newspaper reporter that this witness was the one who sort of faltered. Um, so in that case, we had like a little bit of research that that could bolster our choice. But there are other situations where you don't know, and you have to make a decision. Uh, and that's where it's really great to work with a production team so that you're not making the decision alone. Um, and, you know, also when you're doing the takes then, and, and with Audrey when we did that scene, there was sort of the question of, is that too much? And even listening to now, maybe like there are people in the room who are like, 
yeah, it's too much. I mean, you're going to make a decision. Some people are going to love it. Some people are going to hate it. And the, the idea is that if you're making a thousand decisions across, you know, a season, as long as like 90% of them are good, I think listeners go with it. But if your decisions are sort of over the top over and over, um, then you lose them. Uh, but, but with do you tend to err on the side of like emotion is good because people are going to be more invested in it or is there like, do you have like a rubric? No, I mean scene by scene by scene, but definitely in the tracking what we're trying to do is like with Audrey we had like a straighter tra uh, straighter take that was sort of a little less emotive um, and we cut it in and we tried it and we tried you know but we always had options so like if in the 11th hour somebody's like nah that's over the top we would have another option but really like I got to say it's just sort of scene by scene and those are the those are the moments where you're like sometimes you hear it back later and you're like yeah we overdid it or we didn't quite do it right and the best thing you can do is just listen to it back all right next time <laughs> we'll do it differently uh, i thought it was really great when you played the two versions of the scene with the windshield wipers um i have to confess i like the michael bay version better <laughs> and you can spit on me later. Uh, I think I'm not funny. at all. I, but um, I, it brought me to think like, do you test it all? Have you ever tested versions on your target audience and discovered things that kind of like surprised you, especially in this idea of like how much uh, sound design is, whether it's covering up the text and how it's working for people? I would, I would absolutely love a process like that where we, we were able to, you know, to make something like that in advance enough to be like, all right, even if it's just like 20 people you work with and have them listen. But, you know, unfortunately the way production schedules go, like a lot of these things are being made under the gun and on the fly. Um, but yeah, I guess sort of like the, the, the test audience feedback that you get is, does a show, you know, it's, it's in real time. It's, it's the download numbers and people talking about it. So, um, but that's not to say, I mean, this is still again, sort of a burgeoning media. And it's not to say that like within a few years, the production model is totally different and you produce and then listen before you go out. You know, that, that sounds great, but it sounds to me like a, a luxury. <laughs> yeah. Um, thanks so much, this was amazing. I'm just curious to know if, how much are you thinking about sound design before you go into the studio to voice with people? Like, so are you already thinking about the musical transitions and like how much, and you said that maybe sometimes you already have a bit of a session on the go. I'm just curious how much you have on the go beforehand. Again, it's sort of time dependent. If I've got the time, I, I definitely love sitting down with fiction or whatever, and or if it's just like an episode script before you're assembling anything and doing that prep work and deciding where you want stuff. And when you do that, sometimes it's like you come in and the way Wallace Shawn sort of slowed his voice down on that one line suggested the sound design. It worked in that direction. But there are other times that if you come in, you're like, ooh, I got this idea. I got this great idea. If you read it like this, I'll do this thing. So it can work in that direction. But again, you have to sort of hedge your bets. If you go in with that idea and you think it's sort of experimental or different or your team's not going to dig it, get an alt take, you know, so you don't have to get them back in. But again, it's time dependent. And there are other things, like there'd be times where like I wouldn't do the script, Brendan would have the script, or somebody at the Paris Review would have the script, and they'd be sort of jotting ideas ahead of time. Um, and and that's great. So if you again, if you've got a team and you can divvy that work up, that's great. But definitely the preparation pays off, yeah. Thank you, everybody. This is really fun. <laughs>